A new crisis is underway on the southern border as thousands of migrants, including unaccompanied minors, attempt to gain entry into the United States. So is this Joe Biden's kids in cages moment? Friends, it's time for Hold the Line. Welcome to Hold the Line, I'm Buck Sexton. It was inevitable in a sense. You have a Democrat administration that doesn't really want to enforce immigration law, so this turns into a crisis at our border. We all knew this was gonna happen, just a question of when. Democrats don't really believe that anybody is illegal. They say things like, people can't be illegal. And so now we have a huge influx. What do you do with the people who are showing up at the southern border and who are crossing into the United States right now illegally? Well, you try to put them in a facility to process them to figure out, are they asylees? Are they people who are just crossing into the country because they're looking for work? What's really going on here? And when you add children to the mix, of course, it gets more complicated. Here we have the Washington Post uh, images that are are making the rounds. There's a lot of this now all over the internet of what's going on at the border right now. There are influx facilities, they're calling them, that are underway, influx facilities. And the Washington, here, here you see one of them. The Washington Post wrote that at the 66-acre site, groups of beige trailers encircle a giant white dining tent, a soccer field, and a basketball court. There's a bright blue hospital tent with white bunk beds inside. A legal services trailer has a Spanish word, bienvenidos, or welcome, on a banner on its roof. There are trailers for classrooms, a barber shop, and a hair, and a hair salon. So essentially setting up a miniature city, they're telling you here, for children who are now being detained. But here's the thing. They're still being detained. They're still being held in a facility. And I remember when that was a horrible crime. That was actually a human rights violation that the Trump administration, of course, should be brought up on charges at the Hague for holding children at our southern border. And then when that whole fiasco happened, remember back during the Trump administration, there was video, there were photos circulating of kids in cages. This became the the big line. And and you see, the thing about the kids in cages was that the some of the photos that were circulating of the of the kids in, in the so-called cages were from 2014 under the Obama administration. So see, this is a problem. When you have unaccompanied children or children who are a crossing in the United States with an adult who is doing an illegal act by crossing in the United States in that way, there aren't a lot of really excellent options, are there? But instead of taking an honest approach when Trump was dealing with this big surge at the border, they said that he was absolutely awful, that it was inhumane. We'll go over some of the things that they were saying back then. Now, this is no surprise to you, the Democrats have a very different view of What's going on here? AOC tweeted that uh, these are influx facilities. Now, she has also been very critical of holding anybody. Uh, Short-term shift is requiring influx facilities with children to be licensed. Another issue is whether these services should be contracted out the way they are and whether facilities with controversial records should, uh, should even be reopened. So she, she's being critical of it, but she's calling them influx facilities. Okay, that seems like a very gentle euphemism. I want to be clear. When you have a, a, a surge of people crossing the country illegally and there's a Republican president, you have to refer to it as inhumane detention, kids in cages, prison camps, even concentration camps. Oh, that's right. She said concentration camps when Trump was in office. 
Here's what she said. The United States is running concentration camps on our southern border. And that is exactly what they are. They are concentration camps. By her definition, now I want to be very clear, people got upset about this because generally when people, it's not true that all concentration camps are uh, from the era of the Nazi Holocaust, but generally when you say concentration camps, that's what everybody thinks because of the, uh, the great atrocity that was done during that period, one of the worst crimes in all of history. And so when you bring that up, you're making a very, uh, a very inflammatory comparison to what the United States is doing at our southern border. Um, but she was then saying later on, I remember when she tried to defend herself over this, that, well, it is technically a concentration camp. It is technically kids being brought together in a concentrated fashion in a camp. So by her own way of defining and then, of course, defending her, her language back then, what we see here, sure enough, would also qualify as concentration camps. But I have a feeling you're not going to hear Democrats refer to it that way. I have a feeling that they're going to continue to refer to them as influx facilities. Because as we all know, Democrats feel like as long as they can control the language, they can control perception. If they can control perception, then they can get their way politically. One of the reasons why they've been calling them undocumented immigrants for so many years that are now just switching to non-citizen to make it even more vague. Who, who exactly are we talking about here? All of this was predictable, and in many ways it was inevitable when you have a Democrat administration, given where the Democrat Party has gone on the issue of immigration. Do they really even think that crossing the U.S.-Mexico border in violation of federal law, is it really a crime, though? Is that a, technically it is a crime, but should it be a crime? Here's the incoming Attorney General, and would have been, if Obama had gotten his way, Supreme Court Justice Merrick Garland, but that didn't happen, asked a very straightforward question as to whether illegal crossings are really illegal. Talk a little bit more about the law enforcement challenges at the border, which I know a number of other members have brought up with you. Just a, a fundamental question. Do you believe that illegal entry at America's border should remain a crime? Well, I haven't thought about uh, that question. Uh, uh, I just haven't thought about that question. I, I, I think, uh, you know, the, the president has uh, made clear that we are a country of, uh, with the borders and with the concern about national security. Um, I don't know of a proposal to uh, decriminalize but still make it uh, unlawful to enter. I just don't know the answer to that question. I haven't thought about it. Hasn't thought about it. I can tell you who has thought about it. The legions of illegal immigration activists all across the United States, the very well-funded nonprofit groups, including legal groups that are doing everything they can to make it effectively an open border. Uh, they do not believe it should be illegal to cross into the United States. Lots of other countries all over the world, they're allowed to have borders, but the Democrats have shifted their mentality such that now they don't really think we have to have a border at all. I mean, maybe a place where you have to check in and, and process for a second. You know, maybe a place where you have to just, you know, take a number and then keep on going. But nothing that blocks people, nothing that says you actually can't come in this way. You can't just come in because you feel like it. This is the destruction of our immigration system as we know it. And that's what Democrats won't say, but it is what they want. And it's all tied in with amnesty and the Biden administration's refusal to enforce the laws, which a federal judge in Texas just said, 
you can't do that. You can't have a 100-day pause on all deportations. So there's a universal in injunction in place right now over that. But that shows you exactly where this administration is going. And this border crisis is only going to get worse. And maybe it's not true that there are kids in cages, but by the AOC definition, Biden's got kids in concentration camps based on what AOC said about the Trump administration. All right, coming up, we have more on the growing crisis at the border with former uh, senior strategy and, and a senior strategist and advisor of the Trump campaign, Steve Cortez. You never thought that COVID-19 could cost you your home, right? Well, it actually can. Here's why. Cybercrime is up across the board about 75%, and by far the most serious cybercrime that you have to worry about when it comes to your home is home title theft. That's right, cyber criminals, foreign and domestic, are now after our homes, and it's easier than you'd think. The title documents to our homes are online now. The thief finds your home's title and forges your signature on a quitclaim deed, stating you sold your home to him. Then he takes out loans on your home and leaves you in debt. You won't know until late payment notices or perhaps even the eviction notice arrives in the mail. Insurance doesn't cover you, and neither do common identity theft programs. That's why I protect my home with Home Title Lock. The instant Home Title Lock detects someone tampering with my home's title, they help shut it down. Go to HomeTitleLock.com and register your address to see if you're already a victim, then use code RADIO to receive 30 free days of protection. That's code RADIO at HomeTitleLock.com. Again, code RADIO at HomeTitleLock.com. Steve Cortez, a former senior strategy advisor from the Trump campaign, has been raising the alarm on Biden's looming border crisis. In his latest op-ed, he writes that Biden's open borders radicalism invites a, quote, human tsunami of illegal migration, pointing out the latest evidence from U.S. Border Patrol. Apprehensions of adults at the southern border in January 2021 vaulted 182 percent higher than in January 2020. With this, Cortez says that Biden, Biden's moves to effectively vaporize the U.S. border threaten an economic, humanitarian, and national security nightmare scenario for America. Steve Cortez joins us now to explain. Steve, always great to see you, man. Thanks. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. So you have uh, the kids in cages line coming back all of a sudden. I remember when that was being used against President Trump uh, with considerable political effect. It was being magnified right. by all the media. Jen Psaki, the White House press uh, secretary, said this. I want to have you respond to it. Kamala Harris said that this facility, putting people in this facility, was a human rights abuse committed by the United States government. And Joe Biden said, under Trump, there have been horrifying scenes of border uh, at the border of kids being kept in cages. Now it's not under Trump, it's under Biden. This is not kids being kept in cages. This is a facility that was opened that's going to follow the same standards as other HHS facilities. It is not a replication, certainly not. That's, that is never our intention of replicating the immigration policies of the past administration. But we are in a circumstance where we are not going to expel unaccompanied minors at the border. That would be inhumane. This is our effort to ensure that kids are treated or not in close proximity and that we are abiding by the health and safety standards. What do you make of it, Steve? Well, Buck, you know, the hypocrisy and wordplay here is really stunning from the Biden administration. You know, what they, what the Democrats and the corporate media willingly called kill, kids in cages previously, now I guess we're going to refer to it as undocumented minors 
in cubicles that are locked that have bars on the windows and that's not kids in cages. Uh, you know, it's absurd, of course. But to the broader policy point here, you know, listen, it is a sad reality right now that our migrant youth detention facilities are almost full, that overall apprehensions, as you put up on the screen, are soaring. And there's a reason for that, Buck. People are smart. People respond to incentives in the real world and would-be trespassers, illegal migrants into this country have been incentivized by Joe Biden and his effectively open borders policy. Now, they never use that phrase, of course, but that's exactly what he's instituting. What, what has he already done? He's already suspended all deportations. He is already starting to dismantle the remain in Mexico policy that was so successful in preventing and prohibiting the abuse of our generous asylum practices in the United States. And then even beyond that, what he wants the Congress to do, of course, is give full amnesty, full citizenship to people who broke and entered into the United States. And on top of that, generous benefits that are intended for citizens, things like taxpayer financed health care. So what we already see, uh, I think it's just so important, Buck, you know, while Washington, D.C. was dithering on a ridiculous, ridiculous farcical impeachment, the border is already, unfortunately, percolating with a looming crisis that is only going to get worse once the weather there becomes more hospitable. I fear this could be a spring of absolute chaos and crisis at our border. You were close to the previous administration. You were an advisor to the president in various capacities. I remember how his immigration policy and specifically the detention of children was being described back then. Here's Kamala Harris, February 20th of 2019. The trauma these children will experience will live on for decades to come. It's absurd that it needs to be repeat, repeated. Ripping babies away from their parents to put them in cages is humane. Um, and the Washington Post has now First migrant facility for children opens under Biden. And Glenn right. Greenwald rightly points out what an absolutely sweet and lovely way to describe immigration detention centers. Poetic almost. It's been a while since Trump was president, so my memory isn't perfect, but I vaguely recall a different phrase used back then. But that's the beauty of human language. It evolves. Yeah, it evolves all right. Right. No, it sure does. It evolves because, let's be honest, Corporate media, the legacy platforms of this country, they're not journalists. Uh, they are activists and advocates who are masquerading as reporters and anchors, unfortunately. And they are all too willing to cheerlead what they formerly condemned, right? Uh, now only because Joe Biden is the president of the United States. But again, here's the reality. Look, of course I feel for children who are, uh, who through no fault of their own, end up unaccompanied at the border, right? It's a humanitarian disaster. My point is, the Biden policies are encouraging more of the same. There's this idea that the left wants us to believe that porous borders or open borders is somehow a humane approach. It is anything but, Buck. The, the border region of the United States, which had been lawless for decades previous to Donald Trump, uh, it was unfortunately uh, fertile ground for all manner of criminality and massive abuse. It was a place that was largely controlled by the cartels, by the vicious criminal cartels of Mexico. Now, that was put on hold by the sensible policies of President Trump remain in Mexico combined with border walling, hundreds of miles of wall, about 450 miles in total that was built. Customs and Border Patrol on the ground tell us that was an incredibly effective tool, not the only solution, but an incredibly effective tool at deterring illegal crossing. We were making enormous progress. And now here comes Joe Biden willing to throw all that away. And not only will Americans suffer because of the uh, illegal and unfair competition in the wage market, not only will our national security and perhaps even our health security suffer, but also suffering on the southern side of the border, uh, again, because of all the human exploitation that will take place, a lot of it of young people. 
You, uh, you had the chance to speak to the president recently. I know he's going to be talking at CPAC. I will be at CPAC. Uh, he'll be giving one of the keynote addresses. Just tell me this. Uh, how's, how's the president viewing the future of the party right now? You know, first, let me tell you, Buck, Sorry, the president the is former, uh, pardon me, the former president. Right. Just to be, I, I keep right. doing that. I also write 2020 in my checks. I apologize. How does the former president yes. view the future of the Republican Party? Yes, the, the 45th president uh, is incredibly excited, I will tell you that. First of all, he was in just fantastic spirits. Uh, you know, he looked great. He is optimistic. You know, of course, he's still rightfully angry, understandably frustrated about the problems with the November 3rd vote. But he is also looking to the future. And I think that this speech he's going to give at CPAC in some ways is his second debut politically uh, before the country. He is very focused on, number one, in this year, 2021, uh, getting state capitals to fix their election processes, particularly the ones like like Pennsylvania and Georgia, which so perverted their own laws and constitutions. But then he's also focused on 2022, on electing not just Republican majorities to the House and Senate, but America first Republican majorities, not people like Mitch McConnell and Liz Cheney, but real American nationals, people who believe, for instance, in defending the border. And in his speech, I've not seen uh, the speech yet, but I um, I, I persuaded him, I think, and, uh, and, and encouraged him to include a lot about the border. Not, number one, it's the right policy to be tough on the border, but number two, it's politically popular. Uh, Morning Consult did polling of the dozens of executive orders that Joe Biden passed in his first weeks in office. I shouldn't say passed because he just signed them, but that he instituted. And of all those executive orders, of the bottom seven in popularity, five of them, Buck, had to do with immigration and borders. And by far the least popular of all his executive orders is the one where he, um, where he, by a multiple of six, expands the number of refugees that the United States is going to take in in this year under his watch. In a time, Buck, a pandemic in this country, in a time when there's enormous economic uncertainty in the country, when we have a still tenuous economic recovery, porous borders are never a good idea, but they certainly are not at a time like this. And the polling reflects that. So Donald Trump, I believe in this address, is going to drive right into that issue. In some ways, he's back where he was in 2016, fighting for borders as the outsider. Steve, appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Buck. Dr. Fauci has recently called the U.S. response to COVID-19 among the worst in the world. If that's the case, why does he still have his job? More on the numerous failures of America's top doctor, so to speak, in tonight's Buck Brief. As the United States reaches over 500,000 coronavirus-related deaths, you have to ask yourself, who's really responsible for our COVID policy? Okay, it's been a disaster, right? We're one year into this pandemic, and it's getting harder and harder to keep all the government mandates and recommendations straight, particularly the ones coming from the almighty Dr. Anthony Fauci, who has become the face of COVID response in America. Let's take a trip down memory lane, shall we, for some of Fauci's most devastating flip-flops that you should all know and remember in tonight's Buck Brief. The science is a phrase that has been abused more than perhaps any other over the last 12 months. As if the science is a person with opinions. What's the best flavor of ice cream? Let's ask the science. It's clearly vanilla. No, it's chocolate. Who cares, right? They act like there's such a thing as the science that gives answers on things. It's just not true. There are facts. There is data. But when you're talking about how to interpret that and make it into policy for hundreds of millions, billions of people, in fact, yeah, that goes outside of the science. That becomes something else. It's judgment. It's politics. 
It's debate. It's something that we have to be talking about. But that was not allowed for because of Fauciism. We were told that whatever he said we should do, and of course the people at the CDC who are effectively taking orders from him, even though he doesn't run the CDC, whatever they tell us to do, the committee, if you will, almost like a central committee, you know, like they had in the Soviet Union, uh, whatever they tell us to do, uh, that's what we have to do without any question. Problem is, if you actually go back and remember what we've been told to do at different times and how this went, you will very quickly see that we've been told to do a lot of stuff that's not right. Here is Fauci flip-flopping all over the place. No, right now, at this moment, there is no need to change anything that you're doing on a day-by-day basis. Then it became clear that we were in real trouble. When was that? Around when was that? Well, that was probably towards the middle to end of January. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. Putting a mask on yourself, if everybody does that, we're each protecting each other. My parents have already gotten their second dose. They're fully vaccinated. Does that mean it's okay for them to spend time with their grandchildren? You know, I, I'm not going to make a recommendation now. Yeah. A lot of back and forth there on things over a very short period of time. They can come up with as many complicated explanations as they want of how things have changed. But we all know, hmm, nah, we didn't just discover masks in the last 12 months. We didn't just discover vaccination either. And yet Dr. Fauci is flip-flopping all over the place on these issues. Why do people still listen to him? Why does he still have this grip on the public mind? It's because a lot of people are scared. A lot of people also have been led to believe that he is some kind of grandfatherly figure meant to save the nation from COVID. But has he done that? That's what I really want to ask. Has Dr. Fauci led us through this in a way where we should say thank you, or we should say, what the heck would you say you do here? What was your value in this one, Fauci? Here he is saying that we had a really bad, one of the worst in the world, in fact, a really bad COVID response nationally. Play it. I believe that if you look back historically, We've done worse than most any other country, Um, and we're a highly developed, rich country. It's so tough to just go back and try and, you know, do a metaphorical autopsy on how things went. It was just bad. It is bad now. Most, whatever he said, worse than most any other country. So he didn't say the absolute worst, because that would be just a factual lie. Um, But I just want to show you what we're talking about here. Uh, The UK is probably the closest uh, analogous country to the US in terms of density, in terms of just everything, general population. They actually have a substantially higher mortality rate per 100,000. Belgium, 192. They're they're the worst in the world. Uh, Italy, 159. United States, Spain, just a little bit behind us. Mexico, just a little bit behind us. I mean, these are large, developed, westernized countries, or Western countries, rather. And they were either worse than us or, or a little bit better than us. Point here being, why are we now being told by the guy who was the architect of our COVID response, it's so bad and it's our fault? Was it the UK's fault too? Because they did really the same things. In fact, if anything, more, even more stringent lockdowns than we had in this country. Same thing in Italy. Those are countries where you couldn't even leave your house for days and days on end under penalty of law. Hmm. And yet you look at the numbers, the numbers don't lie. Why is Fauci somehow escaping responsibility for all of this? Why doesn't anyone say, hold on a minute, 
if there's a person who should be most directly accountable for what we're being told by Fauci is a bad response to COVID-19, isn't it Fauci? If a general in a theater of war is losing and there's catastrophe after catastrophe and, and massive losses to the troops, does the general keep his job or resign or get fired? Which one of those things happens? And yet Dr. Fauci somehow is promoted in effect by the Biden administration. Oh, he was strutting his stuff. He was so excited once he came into the Biden administration. Now they're going to listen to science. That's what that was the whole thing. What has changed? Other than Fauci basically telling you that you're going to have to wear a mask for at least another year, what has changed? I just want to know what has changed here. Hmm. Uh, Well, the answer is that uh, Dr. Fauci is a Democrat and Dr. Fauci doesn't, didn't like Donald Trump. And it was a mistake for Trump not to fire him or really replace him and just push him aside. People, people forget, you got to understand how these bureaucracies work. The thing to do would have been to say that Dr. Fauci needed to uh, either be pushed aside or step aside for somebody else to run the COVID response early on. But I know hindsight is 2020. But here you have a guy telling you that our COVID response for last year is terrible. He is more directly responsible for that than anyone else in the country. When you're looking at policy, Fauci was making the calls. How did that work out for us? Yeah. And yet he takes no responsibility. It's your fault, you see. You didn't listen to him enough. You didn't mask up enough. That's what he says. Anyway, America's colleges and universities remain cesspools of far-left wokeness and insanity. So how's the right supposed to survive on campus? It's a question that's now uh, many, many years in in the asking. The first TV's Isabel Brown has some answers for higher education's embattled conservatives, and she joins us next. These days, being prepared for the unknown is more important than ever. I'm sure you've noticed the world we live in is anything but predictable, and we could all benefit from something reliable right about now. What could be more reliable than real gold and silver? I'm talking about real gold and silver you can actually hold right in your hands. Call the Oxford Gold Group now and learn how easy it is to get real gold and silver sent securely directly to your home, or how you can have real gold and silver placed in your IRA or 401k. Just call the Oxford Gold Group at 833-600-GOLD and ask for your free guide on owning gold and silver. Again, call the Oxford Gold Group right now at 833-600-GOLD. The Oxford Gold Group is the only gold company I trust. Call them right now, 833-600-GOLD. Don't wait for inflation to kick up. Don't wait for the economy to take a nosedive. Take action today to protect the dollars in your bank account. All you have to do is call my friends right now at the Oxford Gold Group, 833-600-GOLD. Check them out today. College campuses in this country are not known for their diversity of opinion. (laughs) That's putting it mildly. In fact, they've become the breeding grounds of a new generation of indoctrinated and radicalized leftist youth. In many cases, anyone with dissenting views from the liberal orthodoxy is shunned and isolated at these so-called institutions of higher learning and education. Free thinking and free speech are sins, while safe spaces and trigger words are heralded as virtues. To give us an idea of just how bad things have gotten in American higher education and how to fight back, I'm joined by TPUSA spokeswoman, first TV contributor and author of Frontlines, Finding My Voice on American College Campus, Isabel Brown. Isabel, good to see you. 
Thanks for having me, Buck. Excited to be here. So tell me about your, I know, I feel like every conservative has their, well, in my day, those of us who are a little bit older than you, in my day, we had these crazy things happening on the campus. What, what were you subjected to? Because you've just come out of the campus ideological battles. Recently, I have, and back in my day at Colorado State University, where I graduated in 2019 with a degree in biomedical sciences, I faced extreme levels of leftist backlash, hatred, death threats and threats of violence, and even having my address leaked online simply because I decided it was time for diversity of thought at my large public university in very middle America, Fort Collins, Colorado. As I mentioned, I was a scientist by education and my intention was to attend medical school after graduation. But even in my classes like anatomy and organic chemistry and physics, we were talking about how, yes, there's two sets of chromosomes, but unlimited genders or even about the need to get rid of the First Amendment and completely scrap the idea of free speech altogether. It was shocking, but I think the reality that many people are unaware of in this country is that this wasn't happening at a Harvard or a Berkeley known leftist institution of education. This was happening everywhere, including at a big agricultural school in Colorado. You said you got death threats. Do you know, was that from other students or from just random people on the internet? Both, quite a few came from students that I worked in student government with or knew personally from my classes on campus, and several came from Antifa members involved in the organization across the state of Colorado as well. How did Antifa know about and, and target you specifically? What kind of activism were you involved in, and what were some of the causes that you were trying to push on campus? That's the million dollar question. And I think we expect some of this behavior from known conservatives who have quite a large social media following or maybe work in television and media. But as a normal biomedical sciences college student, I never expected to receive such hatred for my community simply because I was an outspoken conservative. I believe that they knew who I was because I decided to start a Turning Point USA chapter when I was a junior at Colorado State University and quickly gained a reputation for being that conservative girl or that Turning Point girl on campus, was regularly mentioned in political science or ethnic studies classes and on social media for Antifa groups as well. What kind of things would you do on campus with TPUSA that would attract the, the ire of these leftists in, in such a way? Nothing all that controversial, and that is so important to understand. Conservative students aren't going out spewing hateful rhetoric as the left would like for you to believe. Instead, we're simply trying to start a conversation about free speech for everyone, about differences in political values, the importance of limited government, for example. And we stand out on campus handing out socialism sucks buttons for your backpack and also bring notable conservative speakers to campus. As the Turning Point USA chapter president, when I was a student, we brought Charles Lee Kirk, Candace Owens, and Dennis Prager for lectures on campus, which ensued literal riots when I was a student, mandating the necessity for the National Guard to come to campus and protect attendees of the event. But the reason I'm sharing my story is not to play the victim or to tell you that I had a bad experience in college. I've never felt victimized by these circumstances at all but rather because it's not unique. There are literally thousands of students experiencing this reality every single day on virtually every college campus across America. Are we making any progress here? I was on a small college campus in central Massachusetts. Uh, oh God, now, I don't even know. It's been, it's been uh, 16 years, so it's been a little while. And there was lunatic stuff going on then. We had people burning American flags 
after 9-11. Yeah, in public, we had people who were calling the Bush administration Nazi war criminals and having demonstrations about how uh, he should be tried for war crimes. And there was a lot of, a lot of crazy stuff. It feels like they're getting perhaps more bold and, and, and more insane with the things you're talking about. We, I ne- we never had the National Guard show up. Are, are we making any headway in the other direction? I mean, it feels like somehow this just keeps getting worse, Isabel. That's, and that's one thing I'm sure you must deal with in the book. Yeah, Buck, I'll give you some hope with this answer. I do believe that we're making positive changes on college campuses, but it's not coming from the faculty or administration. It's coming from students. I'm a Gen Z American. I was born in 1997, which is the first year of the next generation of young adults in our country. And I bet you may not know, Gen Z has been proven to be the most conservative generation America has seen since World War II. We're proud of the things we believe in. We're proud of our country, and we're excited to share conservative conservative ideas like free speech, limited government, and personal responsibility with one another in our generation, whether that's on campus or on social media. That being said, universities are definitely digging their heels in, and that's where you're starting to see some of these crazier stories like mine, which you can read about in Frontlines if you pick up your copy today. But I do believe that students have had enough. We're excited about real education, not indoctrination, and we're ready to do something about it. Are you feeling like there's uh, now a little bit more of an impetus on this for college kids as they're seeing the amount of suppression that's coming, particularly on social media, whether it's Facebook or TikTok or any of these things, that they need to organize and there has to be a movement for free speech that's really across the country? I mean, how how are, I I hate to use the term the youth, but I guess I'm going to use the term the youth. How, How are they trying to get involved in this digital fight for free speech right now? That's a great question. Speaking as a youth in the community of conservative politics, I can tell you that this movement already exists and it's gaining traction, which is such an exciting thing to be a part of. When I started college in 2015, there were no outspoken conservatives on my campus, largely because of the backlash only a handful of people had received for doing so. Hit pieces in the student newspaper, being doxxed on social media, just to name a few of those things. Luckily today, I get to work with so many organizations that are making a difference online and on campus like Turning Point USA. Here at TPUSA, we are very much ramping up our digital efforts, including creation of more Turning Point productions, which are shows that live on social media, things like IGTV, Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube. And we're trying to reach people where they're at today. For now, students don't have to look very far for how to get involved in the conservative movement. They just need to take that bold step of courage forward to do so. Isabel, good luck with the book, Frontlines. People can get it now on Amazon. Thanks so much for joining us. Good to see you. Thank you. A couple more things we've got to talk to you about. Quick hits next. But before the break, I want to thank you for watching the first and supporting free speech. Now, I'm sure you're watching us right now, but if you haven't downloaded the first TV app yet, you need to do it right this second, okay? You can watch Hold the Line live or on demand anywhere, anytime on your phone, tablet, or smart TV. Just go to your favorite app store and uh, search the first TV. It'll come up right away. It's absolutely free, so you have no excuse. Plus, not just my show, as great as that is, you get access to Bill O'Reilly. Merrick Garland can't answer basic biology questions, it seems, and New York Governor Andrew Cuomo is on the verge of his own Me Too moment. These stories coming up in quick hits. Let's first get to... Merrick Garland, you'll remember that he was supposed to be a Supreme Court justice if Obama got his way in the very last year of his second term. 
But Mitch McConnell, you could say, held the line and didn't allow for a Senate vote. Now we get the return of Merrick. Uh, the return of the Merrick, if you will. Uh, not the return of the Mac. Some of you remember that song. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Merrick Garland came back into the mix here. But he's talking or he's answering, I should say, a question from members of Congress about transgender athletes. Doesn't really give much of an answer. Here's what he said. Allowing biological males to compete in an all-female sport deprives women of the opportunity to participate fully and fairly in sports and is fundamentally unfair to female athletes. This is a very difficult societal question that you're asking here. I know what, what underlies it. I know it. what uh, you're uh, going to be attorney general. Well, but uh, I, I may not be the one who has to make policy decisions like that, but it's not that I'm adverse to it. Look, I think every human being should be treated with dignity and respect. Um, and I, that's an overriding sense of my own character, but an overriding sense of what the law uh, requires. Is it a hard question, though? I know the Democrats, which clearly Merrick Garland is, feel like they have to say that. But does anybody really doubt that there's an enormous biological advantage that men have in athletic competition or that biological males have in athletic competition over uh, biological females. Transgenderism doesn't change that, right? There's, there's nothing to support the idea that all of a sudden that enormous gap between the sexes uh, goes away. So why do we have to pretend this is a straightforward question? Or at least you should be able to give a straightforward answer, right? You should be able to say, yes, I think this is fair, or no, I don't think it's fair. But that's the soon-to-be attorney general for the Biden administration, and sure enough, doesn't want to give an answer, really. I, mean, I, I agree that all human beings should be treated with dignity and respect, of course. But should a biological male be setting the Texas state track and field records for women's sports? Should a biological male be able to compete in the U.S. Open on the women's side for tennis or for golf? I'm just wondering. Where do the rules actually stop and start here? Right. The left doesn't actually have much in the way of answers, but they want to continue to make you think that if you don't agree with them, with their constantly changing position on this, you're a bad person. Um, Biden is supposed to be the honest guy who's restoring dignity and integrity to the office of the president, right? That's what we're told. I mean, Forget about the Hunter Biden stuff and the selling access to China and Biden's career as just a classic slimy politician who does anything that he needs to in order to get ahead. I mean, he's just, you know, blue collar Joe, right? Uh, he says stuff sometimes, though, that is not very honest. That's one way of putting it. Recently, you know, he claimed that there was no vaccine when he came into office. We know that's not true. And then he claimed this kind of perpetuating a continuing smear against the president play, uh, the Biden bleach comment. I think there's a growing awareness that, uh, um, you know, uh, injecting bleach into your system doesn't do it for you. Yeah. Now, I know he didn't say that the president said it, but he's obviously referencing the line that Donald Trump said, and he claims it's in jest. I don't think anybody really thinks Donald Trump believed that you're going to inject bleach into yourself. But, you know, taking a swipe at the, pre at the former president. I'm sorry I keep doing that. It's very hard to make that transition mentally. Maybe I'm just subconsciously fighting the idea in my own head that uh, Joe Biden is now president of the United States. 
And there's a lot of exaggeration in the media. There are a lot of people that go too far, that say things that are not true, that are unfair. Uh, this one was particularly, even, you know, with a lot of people out there who are really pushing the envelope on this, this one was particularly rough. You had MSNBC's Chris Hayes comparing the uh, fresh, uh, fresh woman congressman, uh, Lauren Boebert, to, well, I'll let the anchor of MSNBC at whatever time he's on tell you. The use of guns in that way as props and the implicit threat that comes with them has a, you know, long, not necessarily a great history among various movements around the globe. Osama bin Laden, for one, liked to pose in front of a bookshelf with a gun prominently displayed. The Irish Republican Army would display guns in its propaganda posters and its murals. Cuban revolutionaries, they posed with guns all the time, too. And no single side of the spectrum has a monopoly on this aesthetic. I mean, you can see it, you know, all over the world. It is unquestionably the aesthetic of armed struggle, of revolution or insurrection. <laughs> oh, man. MSNBC. Yeah, I guess it never gets old being so crazy. It, it's, always, it's always something. Um, a lot of people have shotgun or rifle over the fireplace at home in many places across America that MSNBC doesn't think about a lot. It's just a thing that you have. So turns out it's not similar to Bin Laden or Che Guevara or, you know, Castro or whoever the heck they were showing there. Uh, it's just the American way for a lot of people. Not a big deal. But it is a big deal if you live in Brooklyn and are a millionaire who's never fired a gun and knows nothing about them. Then, it, then it's terrifying, perhaps. February is, uh, at least in the Northeast, not a great month. It's a little cold, a little dreary. And lately, obviously, with the lockdowns and everything else, it's particularly rough. But Governor Cuomo may be having the worst February he's had in a very, very long time. Maybe ever. Uh, he, as you know, has been dealing with the nursing home scandal blowing up in his face, and he's trying to put it out, but it has not been successful so far. In addition, you have a former senior aide to Cuomo who's accusing him of harassment and inappropriate behavior. Lindsay Boylan has come out to say, today I'm telling my story. I never plan to share the details of my experience working the Cuomo administration, but I'm doing so now in hopes that it may make it easier for others to speak their own truth. Uh, there are a lot of allegations she makes about Cuomo's inappropriate behavior and texts and comments. You can dig into those. They're being reported right now. One thing, though, that I thought was particularly noteworthy is that she, she wrote that uh, whenever she gets a call from a, an ID that she doesn't know or a, a no-caller ID call, because she worked for Cuomo, quote, this gives me PTSD every time. That's how he would call to verbally abuse me or be a total creep. I'm one of the many who must have this reaction every time. Uh, I'll tell you that this is a, a moment that I think Governor Cuomo is not going to be able to easily extricate himself from. He could be having a bit of a Me Too moment on top of the nursing home disaster and everything else. That's it for tonight's Hold the Line. The No Spin News with Bill O'Reilly is up next. Shields high.